marked by the gospel, by remembering the gospel. We've done a long series in the book of Mark, and then since then we've just been looking at different character traits of a Christian. What does it mean to have been marked by the gospel? And I want to conclude just by maybe going back to the beginning somewhat and making sure we, we know what the gospel is. We've heard the gospel. And we could do that by reflecting on the component parts of the gospel. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of, of, as, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. However, uh, this morning I would, I'm planning on completely borrowing another person's sermon and telling you a story that communicates the component parts of the gospel. And without reservation, I'm borrowing Jesus' sermon. And I'm going to tell the story that he tells his congregation in Luke chapter 15. Now Luke 15 is a fairly well-known story. Apparently Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo, uh, Ralph Waldo, is that right? Uh, Emerson. I wasn't an English major. I was in the sports department, in case you haven't figured that one out. Uh, these two men considered this the greatest short story ever written. And so what I want us to do this morning is just really work our way through the text, beginning at the top and making our way through the story. And at the end, we'll just make a few observations that maybe we haven't captured along the way. So let's look in our Bibles to Luke 15. And it's important that we see uh, verses 1 and 2, as David read for us just a few minutes ago. Jesus here, or Luke is telling us, or providing for us a picture of the congregation Jesus is addressing. Apparently everyone fell into one of two groups. Jesus is addressing the sinners and the tax collectors, or the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is the congregation that the preacher stands up in front of on this particular occasion, and everyone gathered in that room falls into one of these two groups. You're either a sinner or a tax collector, or you're a Pharisee or a scribe. And so I don't, you don't think I'm pointing in the wrong direction. You're either a sinner or a tax collector, or you're a Pharisee or a scribe. Those are the two groups of people that Jesus is preaching to in this particular occasion. And he wants every person in the room to recognize whichever group you fall into, all the groups need the gospel. And so he begins the story in verse 11, and we find out straight away that it's a story about a father with two sons. So often we hear this story as the parable of the prodigal son, meaning that there's just one son, but you can see that it's really a parable about two sons. First we have the younger son, the prodigal son, the probably the more famous son, and the word prodigal means reckless. 
or wasteful. And so we have the young, reckless son. And of course, Jesus is referring to the people in his congregation who are sinners and tax collectors. He's telling a story, and very wisely, he's telling a story that's bringing everyone in his congregation into the story. And so the younger son represents the sinners and the tax collectors, and then he has the older son, or the prideful son, or you might say the religious son, referring to the Pharisees and the scribes. So there's two types of people in the congregation, there's two types of people in the story. We have the reckless, and we have the religious. Scene number one, it really breaks into two different scenes. One about the what happens with the younger son, and then we move into the second scene with the older son. In verse 12, we see that the younger son comes to his father, and he asks for his part of the father's state. Now, according to the New Testament customs, what would happen in the New Testament times is once a father died, he would divide up the inheritance amongst his children. And the oldest child would receive a double portion of the inheritance. And so, since we have two sons, what the younger son was expecting was one-third of the father's estate. The the older son was going to get two-thirds, that's a double portion, and the young son comes and says, Dad, I would like my third of your estate now. Did you hear what he's saying? Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I don't really want you, but I do want your stuff. And if I could go ahead and get your stuff and get my hands on it now, then that's what I'm asking for. And it's really an unbelievable statement. It's an unbelievable statement in our culture. It's, a, it's an unbelievable statement in the New Testament times. It's, it's, a, it's sort of the ultimate slap in the face for the younger son to give his father. And the only thing more unbelievable is the father's response. Everyone in the congregation would have the same anticipation. Just just throw the guy out. I mean, beat him as he goes out the door. Completely disown him. Strip him of anything that he has and and kick him out of your, your estate. And the father doesn't do that. He doesn't completely disown his son. He endures the rejected love of his son. And he does divide his estate one-third and two-thirds. And the younger son, the younger brother, gets his hands on his third. And the two, what's left, the two-thirds, goes to the older brother. In verse 13, you see, and you're not surprised, that it only took a few days for the new wealth to begin to work on the young man. He empties his local bank account, heads off to a distant country, pockets stuffed full of cash. Younger brother types don't really like authority figures. They really don't want somebody looking over their shoulder and sort of examining how they're using their resources or using their life, whether it's a father or anyone else. And so 
younger brothers are always trying to, to move away from authority figures so they can spend their life any way they see fit. And I'm sure none of the first century listeners like you were shocked to hear the kind of life the young man falls into pretty quickly. He squanders his wealth according to the text. He, he lives in sort of a wild, reckless, prodigal living. We find out later in the story that he's apparently wasted his money on prostitutes. He lives like there's no tomorrow. He's sort of the uh, ultimate poster boy for the slogan, if it feels good, do it. I mean, if it feels good, do it. That, he's, he's the face of that slogan. He's just living just for today. Whatever I can sort of do that I want to do that, that makes me feel good, I'm going to be living large. And I have no doubt that at some moments in the life of this young man, there was real pleasure. He, I think at some times he must have believed, this is it. This is the very thing I was hoping to, to get my hands around. Finally, I've, I've sort of arrived. I've, I've gotten away from all this authority. I've, I've got my hands on some cash and, and I can spend it anyway and do anything I want. And finally, I'm living. I have no doubt there were some days where he felt that way. Some of us can color in the picture of this young man's life with details from our own life. We don't need a lot of description because we have enough to fill in between the lines in the life that we have led. But, not surprisingly, things change. And wouldn't you know, a famine hits the same day he runs out of his money. Unfortunately, all of his investments are bankrupt. All the seeds that he's sown now when he's hungry, they, they can't produce anything back. They've already given everything that they can give. And, and in his critical time of need, the young son's looking around at his investments. He's, he's looking at the seeds he's sown in his life and, and nothing's coming back. And the young son lands in a place lower than he could have ever imagined being. My guess is some of you have been in that place. How did I get here? I, I couldn't have ever imagined me being in this spot. He's gone from the son of a wealthy father to being a servant of pigs. And then you see what happens, the ultimate, in the low spot. He's longing for the pig's inheritance. You see that? They're getting something that now I want. Their food, I would be happy to get my hands on. 
Verse 17, finally the boy comes to his senses. One commentator says this, Just as he had been far from his home, the young man had been far from himself. He had been out of his home and out of his mind, and so something triggers after some days of feeding these pigs, and he just comes to his senses and says, What what have I been thinking? And then I just want you to notice he comes up with a two-point plan. How he can sort of get back. And the two points are this. I will go back to my father and I'm going to make this confession. I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Point number one. Point number two. I know I can't be a son But if I could just sort of get hired on. And now a hired servant is somebody who earned a wage. And most likely the son was thinking, you know, I'm never going to get back into the son status. But if I could just sort of make something and just as maybe a little token, I'm not going to be able to give it all back, Dad. I'm not expecting you to really call me a son. But if I could just sort of give some small tokens back then maybe you would would be able to embrace me, even if it was just sort of as a servant and not as a son. That's his two-point plan. So the son swallows the only thing he has left to chew on, and that's his pride. And he starts this long walk back. How many times do you think he went through his two-point plan in his mind. Oh, no, i I got to say it this way. It's gotta cut. No, I can't say it. No, that's not the right phrase. And he's just going through it over and over. And, and, and the closer he gets, he must have stopped at some points just thinking, am I sure? I wonder if at this point as a speaker, Jesus paused maybe take a little drink of water, just to allow half of his congregation, the the tax collectors and sinners, sort of wonder, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to a person who's recklessly wasted their life? What's the Father going to do? I wonder what this reaction is going to be. Is it possible that somebody who's wasted their life could actually get back in in any way towards the Father? Verse 20, the younger son, as well as everyone in Jesus' congregation, is really completely caught off guard by what happens next. The younger son, still a long way off, dressed in rags, smelling like his last occupation, actually discovers that the father has been looking for him. At some distance, he sees the outline of his dad. And his dad's just scanning the horizon for any sign of his son. And he sees one day, that's my son. I I know my son. 
And what no Middle Eastern patriarch would have done, a complete embarrassment to himself, he sort of picks up his robe and he begins to run for the son. And some commentators have said that the father here really is acting like a mother. And and I wonder what the son must have been thinking at this particular moment. I bet my dad can't wait to get his hands on me and shoot the life out of me. And he, and he discovers the very opposite. It's almost embarrassing when you read it in the text. He kisses him over and over and over again. He's embracing him. It's, it's one of those things you, you're hugging the person and you can't see him like you want when you're hugging them. So then you push him back out so you can see him again. But then they're too far away, and so you're hugging them again. And this, this sort of happens over and over and over again. And the, all the son can do is get out his one-point plan. You notice that? He doesn't get out the two-point plan. He just can squeeze out the one-point plan. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Charles Spurgeon describes this scene perfectly when he says the prodigal son is met by prodigal love. The recklessness of the son is met and overcome by the recklessness of God's love. Things are happening quickly. The son's trying to get out his confession. He doesn't get to a second point because the father, just on the spot, broadcasts a different plan. Nope, son, I'm announcing a new plan. Bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the shoes, bring out the the fatted calf. The father's not going to wait for payback. The father's not going to wait to see if the son proves himself. The father's not going to wait for the son to clean himself up. No, this is my son. You hear that? This is my son. He was dead. He was as good as dead and he's back and he's alive. And let's have a huge celebration. And the son, the younger son could never do what the son, younger son could never do. What the younger son could never dream of. Getting back in the family. The father does it in an instant. There's no way he could somehow, in token or in totality, get his, his self back in. But the father brings him all the way back to the family. And they have this enormous celebration with music and dancing. And it's the kind of party that you just kind of get in the middle of and you say, I just hope this never ends. The prodigal son is met by the recklessness, the reckless grace of the father. Scene two. Jesus now turns his attention to the other half of his congregation, the Pharisees and the scribes. And in verse 25, we're introduced to the elder brother. He's not reckless, he's religious. Older brother types, 
insist on strict observance of the law. You get in, you stay in, because you do what's right. I'm not sure if older brother types really approve of loud music and dancing. And so he comes and he hears this music, he smells something cooking, and he finds out that there's a huge party going on because the young bro- younger brother has come back. And he's not just come back, he finds out that the father has actually welcomed him back into the family. He's been given a robe, he's been given a ring, he's been given shoes, the fatted calf has been killed for the younger brother, and the elder brother, you see, is not happy. In fact, he's so unhappy, he's so angry, he's he's steaming so much, he can't even go into the party. Which, that itself in this custom is a big slap in the face to the host, who is the dad. And so the elder brother can't go into the party, so the dad has to come out and meet the elder brother and try to talk to him. You see in verse 29, you can hear the sort of righteous anger of the older son. Because when the dad comes out to meet him, he doesn't say, Father. He says, Look. Look, you. You're you're getting this all wrong. And what is it that the older brother wants the father to look at? There's two things at least mentioned here in the text. First, I want you to look at my perfect record, Dad. These many years, I have obeyed. I have been the one who's been obeying these many years. And I have never disobeyed one of your commands. I'm the one who should be on the inside because of what I've done. And look, I want you to look at your recklessness. The older brother wants the father to look at his own righteousness. And then he's going to point to the father and say, I want you to now look at your own reckless ways. This son of yours, see how he distanced himself from his younger brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, is now devouring the fatted calf. In other words, he's already devoured all of your stuff, and now whose stuff is he devouring? Whose stuff is left over after the younger younger brother leaves? He's devouring my stuff. What was left was mine. The robe that you gave him was mine. The ring was going to be mine. The shoes were going to be mine. The fatty calf were going to be mine. I don't want you having him devour my stuff. A couple of things we discover about the older brother 
and older brother Tights. He thinks he's a better judge of who should get into the party than the father. I, I know the kinds of types who get in. I know the kinds of types who don't qualify. And secondly, I want you to hear this very clearly. He, the older brother is using his obedience or using his religion not to get the father but to get the father's stuff as well. You see that? I'm using my obedience not to just get to the father. You see, the older son's not worried about having been with the father. What's he worried about? That daggum fatted calf. I'm worried about the calf. You read this story and you're going, what's the big deal about the calf? Everybody's so focused in on the calf. And the older brother exposes himself to say, what I really wanted, Dad, was your stuff. And I was willing to obey in order to get your stuff. I'm not really interested in you. Verse 32, the father informs the older son that it was filling fitting to celebrate and to be glad. And he just ends the story. <laughs> That's the end? I mean, Jesus, get back up. What happened? I mean, was there a family reunion? Did the older brother get coming back in? I mean, we just can't sort of live in this tension. How is it possible the one person who seemed least qualified to be on the inside at the end of the story was on the inside and the one person who was most qualified to be on the inside is left on the outside? A couple of observations. We're trying to remember the gospel in this story. We're trying to see different components parts of the gospel. And the first thing that we have to see is the two sides of sin. That there's two different ways that people are separated from God. And everybody falls into one or other or the other of these camps. And Jesus shows us the two sides in the story. There are the younger brother types. This is the, pretty much the traditional view of sin. These are people fairly, fairly easy to spot. They just don't like any kind of authority. They're fairly reckless with the way they live. It's sort of the prostitutes and the parties and the drinking. and They're just going for it and they don't care anything about anybody else really. They certainly don't care anything about God. And their lifestyle is appropriately termed as Reckless or wild. He's a wild guy. That's one side of sin. I just don't really want to have anything to do with God. I don't want Him looking over my shoulder. I want to live my life the way I'd like to live my life. Thank you. And then there's the other side. And this is actually a lot more difficult to see. And it's difficult to see because it shows up in people who 
consider themselves religious. These are the people who maybe would say, well, I've just always grown up in a religious household. I really haven't been anything else but this. They're very moral people. But you see, the older brothers are separated from the father not because of their recklessness. They're separated from the father because of their righteousness. They think their right way of living is going to obligate God to act in a certain way. And Jesus wants us to see, wants us to see these two sides of sin. Have you been living recklessly, controlling your own life? Have you been living righteously, demanding that God operate in a certain way because you've been so obedient? Both of those are sinful. Both of those will keep you at a distance from God. Both are lost. Both really want the Father's stuff. Neither one really wants the Father. Secondly, Jesus reminds us of something important about the initiating love of the Father. You know, whether your current condition is a reckless or religious, the initiating love of the Father is all through the Bible. You see it way back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Adam and Eve, they fell and they try to hide from each other and they try to hide from God. And what's the first action that you see after the sin and after the hiding? What happens? God comes walking back into the garden. He's always initiating the relationship. He's always moving forward towards those who are the least and the lost. You see it just in this particular chapter, verse 15. I mean, chapter 15, there's three different stories. And they're all about things that are lost. There's a lost sheep, and Jesus is going to go find the lost sheep. There's the lost coin, and Jesus is going to sweep the house clean and find the lost coin. There's the lost son, and he's going to come to both the religious and the reckless. Do you see that the Father comes and meets both of them? He runs towards the younger son, but then the other son is outside, and what happens? The Father, at great expense to himself, has to leave the party. The Father, at great expense to himself, has to leave the party and come and speak to the older son. And even though the older son says, look you, you see in the text, the father says, son, you're you're a son. You can get on the inside. I can bring you all the way there. And so we have to see that our sin separates We have to see the initiating love, the reckless grace of God. And finally, we have to see, in order to see the gospel clearly, our need to repent. The only point that the younger son got out was, Father, I forgive, I have failed. 
I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm really, I'm not qualified to be called your son. And so I wonder when we think about these things, when you hear this story, when you hear this sermon from Jesus, are you the religious You holding God's feet to the fire? He's got to come through because what I'm doing, I know the types who get in. I know the types who don't get in. You need to repent of your self-righteousness. Are you reckless? I mean, just living your life for yourself. Some of it's really good. You're trying to get more of that. Some of it's not so good. You're trying to run away from that. Anybody here afraid that if they really turned around, instead of meeting the love that embraces you, you would meet a love that chokes the life out of you? We don't do this that often here at Christ Community Church, but I feel like today would be a good day to do that, do this, and that is give you an opportunity to respond. I think it's helpful for a couple of reasons. One, it's in the story. Son has to get up and come to his senses and walk back home. We hope the older brother comes to his senses. And I'm going to just ask you if you need a moment to repent that you could walk forward here. Just kneel at the front. We've done this a few times. One of the reasons I I always get a little nervous about it is because it seems can sometimes seem manipulative. If you've grown up in a style that's trying to get you to, to come down, you can repent at your seat. You might just be a little bit more chicken about it, which is okay, than coming up here. But what happens is a lot of people don't want to come up front Because it feels like people are looking at me. Well, I want to put that aside. People are looking at you. So you don't have to worry if people, I wonder if people, people are looking at you. People are looking at you. And they're making the assumption that you're either reckless, reckless or religious. Because they're either reckless or religious. There aren't any other types. But just sometimes it's helpful just to say, even if it's just between you and God, you know, I just wanted you to know I'm repenting. I'm, I'm walking back home. And gosh, the ten feet can seem like a mile. I'm sure it felt that way for the young son. Some musical play, and if you want to come up and Confess something before the Lord. You can do it there in your seat. It may be something else that's really captured your attention this morning. It's not even in this parable. But it's heavy on your heart. And it would just be helpful for you to move forward just as a way to say, God, I'm just going to put this down. I I just can't carry this anymore. And I welcome you to do that for the next few minutes. And then we'll move forward in our service.